9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode. I'm David Rothkopf. I am your host, and uh, while I am in New York City, I am joined from Washington, D.C. by Ron Klain, uh, who you may see regularly on MSNBC. He's a favorite there. Uh, he is a former chief of staff to two U.S. vice presidents, Al Gore and Joe Biden, uh, and particularly interesting in the context of some of what's going on today. He was appointed by President Obama as the United States Ebola Response Coordinator in late 2014 into 2015. Uh, and so he has some uh, deep knowledge of uh, the threats posed by pandemics, the nature of the right kind of response. And I want to talk about that. Uh, and I think all of you would be interested in it. Welcome, Ron. Uh, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. So, um, I, you know, I, th- I think just start from a 35,000-foot question. As you have watched this outbreak uh, of coronavirus from Wuhan and watched Uh, how it has spread and how the Chinese have handled it and how we've handled it. What are your initial reactions? Well, I think it's always important to start with the fact that what we don't know is larger still than what we do know. We don't really know how many cases we've seen in China. The Chinese, though they've released some information, I still think are not being transparent and completely candid about what's going on there. We don't know how effective the control measures China's put in place to try to prevent its spread. We don't even really know how easily or what even the mechanism of transmission is from human to human of the virus. And so we don't really know what we're dealing with yet. Uh, I think in terms of the response, so so I think there's the the range of possible outcomes and the range of countermeasures that will be needed is still quite quite wide and quite uh, under development. Um, What I would say is I think on the Chinese side, they certainly – uh, have been a little more open and candid about this than uh, than in previous outbreaks in China, and have shared key data with outsiders, which has allowed a rapid sequencing of the virus and rapid work underway on developing a vaccine, and certainly already success in developing a quick diagnostic. So that's on the positive side. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think there's a really strong reason to believe, and outside epidemiologists believe, that it is much worse than we've been told. There may well be hundreds of thousands of cases in China, and at that scope and scale, certainly it's going to spread uh, extensively throughout Asia and to other parts of the world. Um, in terms of the U.S., I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think that uh, Secretary Azar uh, and his the leading advisors, I thought, gave a very effective and very uh, competent briefing on the response uh, on Tuesday of this week, and I thought they uh, laid out a lot of the right uh, steps that need to be taken to get the U.S. ready for cases and perhaps to help fight the disease overseas. But we have a big gap in dealing with this, and that's at the White House, and that gap obviously operates at two levels. First, at a structural level, President Trump in 2018, due to the recommendation of John Bolton, disbanded 
the permanent uh, 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 directory at the NSC to fight pandemics that had been set up after the Ebola response in 2015, and that it continued through the first year and a half of the Trump administration that was disbanded in July 2018. So there's no mechanism at the White House to manage the response to this, and that may have serious consequences for engaging all the different government agencies and coordinating and quickly responding. And secondly, we have Trump himself. Trump himself is obviously not a crisis manager. His instincts in the face of such a challenge, xenophobia, isolationism, a disdain for science, a scoffing at experts, are obviously all the wrong instincts for facing this kind of challenge. So, you know, I think that's kind of where we stand today. Now, one of the things that's making news this morning uh, is that British Airways has canceled flights to and from China. Uh, a couple of regional airlines have canceled flights to and from China. And there's been some talk of banning U.S. airlines flights into and out of China. Uh, this has a, a certain effect in terms of stemming the spread. Uh, it also has an effect in terms of increasing panic, unease, and, of course, their, their economic consequences. Yeah. What's the right way to handle this kind of thing? Well, look, I think that uh, what the Centers for Disease Control did in telling people uh, not to take unessential trips to China, I think is wise. And I think, um, I think if someone's going to go to China, they need to understand both that there is a health risk. I think that's a little overstated right now. But there's also a lot of logistical risks. Uh, flights are going to be canceled. You may go and not be able to get back home. Uh, you may have trouble traveling inside the China. China. So I think there's a lot of reasons why, if you ask me for my advice, I think the CDC's uh, travel warning is wise and one that should be uh, heeded uh, for a lot of reasons. Now, canceling flights is a different issue. I certainly understand why uh, British Airways may well cancel flights. If people aren't getting on flights, flying them is profoundly uneconomic. And I think we need to not confuse what we're seeing out there and why we're seeing it, right? Um, uh, British Airways cancellations may be more due to the economics of flying empty airplanes than health and safety concerns. Uh, and I think we're going to see that repeated by a lot of the major airlines, uh, again, just for economic reasons. As you know, airlines are a very tough business right now, and flying empty planes isn't a good thing. In terms of banning travel to and from China, what I'd say is the horse is already out of that barn. Uh, this virus has been going on for four or five weeks, uh, certainly, perhaps even longer. Over that period of time, 250 to 300,000 people have come from China to the United States. The virus is here. Uh, we have several identified cases and many more people being tracked for the virus. In Germany, we already have trans domestic transmission from someone who is from China to people in Germany who have transmitted it to other people in Germany. So I think the idea that somehow we are going to take the world's most populous nation and prevent people from coming or going is just unrealistic in this age of global connectedness. There are a lot of great things about being, this, uh, being a connected planet. There are a lot of ways in which it makes life better, commerce, trade, culture, all these things. This is a downside to being a connected planet. The idea that you can just turn off uh, the transit of people from a huge country like China to other places is fanciful. So 
let me sketch out a scenario that uh, you probably never considered, and that is you are an advisor to Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you tell him we ought to be doing right now? What should he be doing right now? Should he uh, reestablish this office? Should he make public statement about the thing? Should he leave it to the CDC? Um, are, are there steps he ought to have uh, uh, thought yeah. about or, you know, regarding, you know, possible escalation of this crisis? Yeah. So I'd say I, well, I want to answer that improbable question in two ways. First is what should a president be doing? And then we'll get to Donald Trump specifically. I think one, the pres a president needs to put someone at the White House in charge. He either needs to reestablish a permanent director at the NSC or, as was the case of the Ebola epidemic, appoint uh, an ad hoc advisor. But someone at the White House needs to be driving decisions, policy, implementation. That's a big gap. He needs to do that. Second, he needs to get the agencies together, and they need to put together a package and get it to Congress right now because it takes Congress, even in the best of circumstances, time to pass funding. We need an emergency supplemental to fund what we're going to need to do to fight this disease overseas and what we're going to need to do to prepare and deal with the cases here at home. That needs to happen right away. And third, uh, the network of hospitals that will treat patients with this virus in the U.S. was established in 2015 after the Ebola epidemic. The funding for that runs out in May. Congress has been dragging its feet on renewing that. He needs to press Congress to renew that so that we don't have the paradox or the, the horrible irony that just at the time when we need to be standing up our ability to treat patients, we're actually winding down hospitals' participation in the program where they would treat such patients. That's what's supposed to happen this spring. We need to reverse that and get that going. So I think those are the three most important things a president should do. Now, Donald Trump is a more complicated situation, obviously, as we see in all things. Um, I think what, when you talk to people inside the executive branch, and I do remain in touch with former colleagues who are working on this, their approach to the White House is a little bit like the fiddler on the roof prayer for the czar. You know, may the Lord bless him and keep him far away from us. And in general, those people who manage these kinds of problems largely hope that the White House just stays away because Trump's instincts are so horrible his reaction to working with career people is so bad, his rejection of expertise is so strong, that engaging the president is a net negative. Trump, this may be the crisis that forces Trump to confront that. There is no way you can beat something like this, if it gets bad, without doing all the things Trump has always refused to do. Shut up and listen, engage the bureaucracy, engage global organizations like the WHO, and other global health security alliances, uh, be uh, interventionist, not isolationist. You know, all these Trump instincts would have to be overcome for him to be an effective president if this kind of expands to a more serious uh, extent. You know, one of, as you know, I, I, for some reason, which I'm not quite sure of, spent much of my adult life writing histories of the NSC. I, written to. I'm writing a third one now about the Trump NSC. One of the things that strikes me in looking at the Trump NSC, particularly under Bolton, um, despite his momentary celebrity and the fondness people yeah. have for him, uh, is that there were certain functions within the NSC that dealt with longer range issues 
um, uh, like uh, 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 the threats of pandemic, like uh, uh, threats of global uh, climate crisis, like uh, cyber threats. And they shut them all down. They essentially yeah. put the blinders on to these longer term things. And so even as we look at this one crisis, I think there is a broader uh, sense that that you know anything that is not urgent, anything that is not on the president's agenda, uh, they they just don't want to be bothered with. And and I so I think that there's risks created here, but there there are other kinds of risks associated with that kind of lack of of vision. I was just since you've spent so much time working in the White House, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, look, David, I agree a thousand percent with that. And what I'd say is I think it's a product of two distinct threads, maybe even three, that merge in the Trump presidency, and particularly the Trump presidency in the Bolton NFC era. The first is this very, uh, you know, machismo, far-right uh, view that there are hard power and soft power issues, and the province of the NSC has only these hard power issues, and some of these long-term systematic things are soft power problems that should be left to the State Department or something like that. And of course, as you know, as you know even better than I do, that's just a horribly misguided view. And and again, this uh, coronavirus may be the case that proves just how horribly misguided that is. We see it every day with climate change and these other long-run problems. So I think part of it's an ideological bias. I think the second factor in this is Trump's and his aides' uh, paranoia about because to build out an NSC staff, uh, that means you're going to have to rely on agency detailees, uh, you know, the so-called deep state. And um, and when I ran the Ebola response, um, I had a team of about 15 people working for me inside the NSC. Uh, I was an appointee of the Obama administration. I had a deputy who was an appointee, two deputies who were appointees of the Obama administration, and the rest were all agency detailees. And um, and that's just the way you have to staff out the NSC. And and given Trump's experience with that, given Trump's biases about that, I think that also leads to the slimming down of the NSC is to send the agency people home and and uh, not have them lurking around and taking notes and participating in meetings and things like that. That's a horrible, horrible tendency, but I think that feeds it. And then finally, I would say a third thing that's similar to the first but different is Trump's general isolationist view. I mean, Trump really believes that, uh, you know, he was elected to kind of disengage from the world, uh, America first, and the more people you have at the NSC, the more they wind up mucking around in other countries. And, you know, the problem with that, again, the coronavirus is an illustration of that, is that obviously uh, this isn't, you know, the 18th century. And uh, if there's a, a virus in China, it can be here in six hours, eight hours, as we're seeing already, right? It's a connected world. It's an interconnected world. Isolationism doesn't work. You know, ironically, uh, you know, in China, they have a giant wall on their northern border. President Trump's trying to build a giant wall on our southern border. Neither of them will keep out a virus. And uh, Trump's kind of isolationist instincts are simply a mismatch for the world we face today. Brings up another issue, which is not really the subject of this conversation, but there is an effort led by the current national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, to slim the NSC down to about 120 people from previous highs that have gotten up almost 400. Uh, and while this is 
in, in my view, it's generally a good idea to have a somewhat slimmer NSC. What that requires is a willingness to delegate to fully empowered cabinet departments. And, and, and you know, you've got sort of the worst of both worlds at the moment, which is getting rid of expertise and capability within the White House, but isolating and condemning the professional bureaucracy and, and not actually engaging with most of the appointed bureaucracy. And so you, 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 you literally, you, you lack wisdom and you, and you lack capability. Um, and, and there seem to be on a path to, to make it somewhat worse. You know, they're, 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 they're certainly not growing into, the president is certainly not growing into the task of managing U.S. national security uh, with each passing year. Well, I think that's right. And look, I think there are two things about that. As even if you can imagine and some theoretical David Rothkopf model where we shrink uh, White House coordination and rely more on traditional cabinet government, I think there are two particular challenges right now that the coronavirus uh, crisis uh, frames up. The first is you still have problems that are very complex interagency problems, and epidemic response is such a problem. There, the, the, the model that Trump is using now, where basically Secretary Azar, for whom I have respect and I think has the right instincts on this, he's kind of in charge. Well, he can't summon the full resources of the government. He can't really – he can have low-level people at the State Department attend his meetings, but he can't really engage the State Department or the Defense Department, who ultimately may be needed in response to elements of this or Homeland Security, other agencies. This is a classic interagency situation, and that coordination and leadership has to come from the White House. And then secondly, as you said, David, the other problem is he's decimated numbers of these agencies. Now, we're very lucky that at HHS, a lot of key longtime serving leaders remain, starting with Dr. Tony Fauci at NIH, who's advised five presidents, Democrats and Republicans, on infectious disease situations, is the best in the world. Dr. Ann Shukat, who's spent her career at CDC and, again, served presidents of both parties, uh, is also you know, a super expert. And the number of names I could drop in that regard. But in other agencies, the decimation has been extreme. We are going to need some of the most sophisticated border security and control and screening mechanisms this country's ever put in place, and there probably isn't a single experienced, competent person at Homeland Security. We're going to need the State Department to really engage so much diplomatically in managing this. While USAID, I think, is very well run and competent, the kind of the rest of the State Department bureaucracy has just been decimated. The Foreign Service, all these things. And so he, even if you thought you could push this off to the agencies, he is not dealing with a full deck. <laughs> yeah, in so many ways. Uh, so many ways. Uh, but uh, I, I think that's right, by the way. And I, I do think the appropriate role for the White House is coordination rather than operation. And I do think there are a number of cases where you need a whole of government response and it can only be coordinated by the White House. So I wouldn't want to suggest uh, that we lose that capability. Uh, now, uh, before I, I move on and we spend a couple minutes talking about politics, I just want to sort of make it more personal for people. Because I've been seeing, you know, from family members and 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 so forth, texts and tweets, just you know, starting along the lines of, uh, "Wash your hands, be careful, don't go to this kind of place," you know, 
do you have any hypochondriacs in your family? Do you have, are there are there people yeah. who are like turning to you and saying, "I'm scared. What do I do?" What do you tell them? Look, I I do think I think every family has those people. I think everyone's. I understand why anyone would be nervous when you when you read the news. What I would say is, um, in general, people need to calm down a bit here. Um, uh, I mean, I'm not saying policymakers need to calm down and government officials need to calm down. They need to be on the job and, more, in fact, more aggressive, more interventionist. But in terms of all of us walking around, how big a risk is this to us walking around the United States? The answer is it's a relatively low risk right now. There are a lot of other things that should be scarier to people on a day-to-day basis right now. We've had only five identified cases in the country. You know, more people have been hit by lightning since this thing broke out than have gotten the coronavirus in America. I think we'll continue to see some spread of the disease uh, in the U.S. We will see more cases. That's almost certain. Um, but again, I think uh, all things considered, it should be relatively small. I think most Americans uh, who certainly are healthy could, if they got the virus, could be successfully treated. We have the best healthcare system in the world. So. Uh, again, I think I would not advise anyone to take non-essential travel to China. Um, you know, I wouldn't ad- advise people to take excessive risks here. But for the time being, people should go about their uh, daily lives uh, as they would uh, here in the U.S. And by the way, you know, washing your hands and not coughing on other people is good advice for a whole bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with the coronavirus. And I hope people would observe those basic health precautions in everyday life. Sure. And, and something like 50,000 people die every year from the flu. So, you know, I mean, there are other risks out there beside the risk that's making headlines. One of the other consequences of the, the coronavirus, though, is uh, uh, economic. Yeah. You've seen global markets uh, slow down. The, 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 the coronavirus is now spread to beyond the level of the SARS virus. And if I recall correctly, the cost of the SARS virus to uh, the Asian economy was $40 billion. Um, this is relevant in and of itself, uh, needless to say, given the world that 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 you and I are in and that our, that our listeners follow closely. Uh, it also has some political consequences. I've noticed recently that, uh, and uh, I noticed this morning that I think J.P. Morgan already lowered their projection for the fourth quarter in the United States. Uh, in terms of growth, down to something like 1.4% from 1.7%, uh, and uh, the the thought of you know significant economic slowdown affecting China and Asia could impact the U.S., which could impact the election. Because at the end of the day, I think the upcoming election is going to come down to kitchen table issues, as they so often do. That whole process starts Monday with the caucuses in Iowa. You've been closely involved um, with uh, uh, Vice President Biden's campaign. What, what, what should we expect from Iowa and what follows? Uh, you know, uh, this is a good time to make the uh, traditional you know, cautionary statement that shouldn't put too much weight on the earlier contest. But how are you looking at it? Well, I think... Um you know, in the Biden campaign, we look at all four of the early contests as a whole. Uh, the, the, the contest will play out over the month of February uh, in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And by the time those four contests are over, uh, a wide swath of Democrats of all parts of the country, of all uh, ethnic and racial groups, of all ideological 
uh, swings will have had a say. And so the first thing I'd say is we should, you know, before we assess how the race is going, we should let the four contests play out and see what's happening. Uh, what we know right now uh, is that Joe Biden is the one candidate who has the broadest appeal across all elements of that party. He draws votes from the left and the center in the party, from white, black, Hispanic, and other racial groups, from older voters and younger voters, uh, from voters in all regions of the country. He is the one candidate of all those running who has shown the most ability to draw from the most diverse array of supporters, and that is going to be absolutely critical to ultimately securing the nomination and, most importantly, to beating Donald Trump. I do think that for Democratic caucus goers and primary voters, question number one is who can beat Trump? It's right that that's question number one. I think there's lots of reasons to believe that Joe Biden is the strongest answer to that question. As you you know, you know I've I've been uh, su supporting a couple of candidates who weren't Joe Biden uh, yep. thus far, primarily because, uh, um, well, there are a couple reasons they appeal to me. I, I think it, I, I have strong sort of bias uh, towards uh, a, a, a woman candidate at this particular time in our history, uh, and coming out of my own experience uh, in the Clinton administration. I, I, I've, I felt that we need to reassess some of the traditional centrist economic choices we've made, because I think they've contributed to inequality. Uh, I had a little exchange with you offline on this, and you made the most compelling case to me that anybody has made as to why, if you believe in progressive causes, Joe Biden is the right candidate to pick. And, I just thought it would be useful to share that because I, 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 I found it very uh, convincing. Well, look, um, I probably personally am more uh, to the left than Vice President Biden is, but I'll tell you why I'm very comfortable with him as my choice beyond my longtime personal ties to him and, and my personal affection and, and friendship with him. The two most progressive presidents we've had in the past 100 years, um, presidencies we've had in the past 100 years, were FDR and Lyndon Johnson. And they were far from the two most progressive people who've run from president. And so why is that? They were able to achieve great progressive things because they brought with them large majorities in the House and in the Senate. And I will tell you from my service in both the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, the limiter on how far both those presidents went in being able to advance progressive change was not their own personal political views. It was not the views of their advisors in the White House. It was the outer bound of change they could get passed on Capitol Hill. Healthcare is an excellent example. Uh, you know, everyone's for now Medicare for all or public option, so on and so forth. President Obama fought like hell for the public option, but he couldn't get the votes to pass it. So I think the best case for progressives for Vice President Biden is, first of all, I do think he's the one most likely to beat Trump, and nothing progressive in America is going to happen unless we beat Donald Trump. But secondly, I think he's the most likely to bring along a large majority of Democrats on Capitol Hill, not just hold the House, but grow our majority in the House. And, of course, most importantly, take back the Senate, because all the talk about getting rid of the filibuster or changing all these rules in the Senate is fanciful if we're the minority in the Senate. You can't – even if you're willing to rewrite the Senate rules, you can't if you aren't at 50. And so I think that Biden's electoral appeal, his ability to help uh, with swing voters in states where we must win Senate seats like North Carolina, Alabama, 
Georgia, Arizona, Colorado, Montana. His ability to help in those states uh, means that uh, the outcome of that is the best possible scenario for delivering progressive change in 2021. Well, I'll give you another reason, and I'm, this is not turning into a, a campaign ad for the Vice President I, Biden. I, I, I think. understand, but no, no, it's it's not turning into anything else either. But it, but but I, I, my my other reason is this: um, presidents are not elected as individuals. In in some ways, presidents are elected as committees or little corporations. They bring with them uh, people uh, who run agencies, run the White House, provide the advice, provide the wisdom, provide the expertise. One person can't get this done. Um, and one of the most persuasive reasons uh, that I think uh, 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 Vice President Biden uh, deserves very, very serious consideration and why I would very enthusiastically support him ultimately as the candidate is the people who are around them. Um, uh, and by this, I mean people like you, people like Tony Blinken, who's uh, actively involved in the foreign policy front, other people I know who are on the foreign policy team. This is the best and the brightest within the Democratic Party in these areas. And it's often invisible. We often don't see um, uh, the, the, the capability there. And there's no question in my mind that we would be upgrading the United States government by quantum leaps uh, if we move forward to that uh, government. So I have to say, I look forward to these uh, primaries as, as a way of the party working out what it's about and what the issues that are on its mind and ultimately working itself into a cohesive whole to win in the fall. Um, but nobody has ever made a better case uh, to me about Vice President Biden than you have. And I just wanted to make sure that everybody out there got to hear it. So I want to thank you very much for doing that, Ron. Uh, uh, well, thank you for allowing me to do that, David. Uh, well, it's a, it's, it's a pleasure. And all of our, our listeners will benefit from it. And uh, perhaps a little later in the year, we can get back together and see how things are going. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, Thanks, uh, and for all of you out there who are listening and want to see the other things we're doing and, and have coming up, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, uh, we've got events coming up. We've got podcasts, multiple podcasts each week. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to have three podcasts a week or four podcasts a week because there's so much going on. And, uh, and we look forward to having you back uh, to listen to uh, great guests like Ron. Bye-bye.